0: Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien, And I'm Aaron. Thank you for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And so with that, Aaron, you're up this week. What are you bringing to the table? So today I've brought an article from the New York
1: Times Magazine, and it's called It's Time for Reparations by Nicole Hannah-Jones. You might know her because she's the creator of the 1619 Project, um, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, MacArthur Genius Grant awardee. All right. Um, So I wanted to bring this to the table because I feel like I've seen an increase uh, in the number of folks talking about uh, reparations, both positively and negatively. Right, yeah. Um, so I thought it was important for us to read up on it. Um, and I think this article in particular feels like it's an argument for why reparations are needed and is based in history um, and how that history has sort of created present-day circumstances. And so that whole connection felt important to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I. yeah, we've definitely seen – more conversations out there about this. So I'm, I'm excited that you brought it to the table and for us to talk about it. Um, you know, y'all, I, I'll be honest, I texted Aaron earlier this week when I first read through this article, you know, for the, the very first time, and I was definitely a little heated when I got done. Uh, and, and I think that's because Nicole Hannah-Jones, not surprisingly, uh, does an incredible job outlining the the case for reparations. Mm-hmm. She she spells out the history and facts and rationale for reparations in a in a really compelling way. Um, and I'm also excited for us to talk about this. I think because I think there are lots of connections to some of the conversations we've had in previous episodes on our show. Absolutely. And and some of the media we've had on the table. And I'm excited to hear what stood out to you in terms of connections to our previous conversations. But you know, for for me, for one, a couple of weeks ago, we read and talked about Mark Lamont Hill's book "We Still Here," and and in it, he plainly says that no vision of freedom in the United States can be discussed without reparations. And and so, as I read this piece, Nicole Hannah Jones's piece, I, I just kept thinking about that and how so much of our conversations are are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it'd be pretty uh, easy
1: for us to make a link to every conversation we've had so yes. far. Right. Yeah. Um, but I really like this because, uh, for a lot of reasons, but the opening part of this article starts off with, um, a section called it feels different this time, um, as the sort of header of the section. Um, and it reminds me of an interview that Angela Davis did in the summer of 2020. Okay. Um, not, not that long ago. <laughs> um, feels like a while ago, <laughs> it but, does. um, and so she talked about how 2020 was an extraordinary moment um, that was different than any time she had witnessed in her in her life. Um, so one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us to collectively think about reparations um, is this quote from the, towards the end of the article where citizens don't inherit just the glory of their nation, but its wrongs, too. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that does so th- thinking about that and thinking about sort of our, our increased conversations around reparations, um, one of the things that gives me hope is another piece um, and statistic that she, Nicole Hannah-Jones, talks about in the article. Um, where she mentions that 76% of Americans and 71% of white Americans believe that racial discrimination is a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big jump, especially for white people uh, yes. in that group. Yeah. Uh, from just a few years ago, and that was when, there were less than half of white Americans thought that. Um, So I guess it's, it's encouraging um, Mm -hmm. that that shift is happening. Um, But it's also hard to believe that it's taken so much sort of evidence um, for that shift to be happening right um, at this point. But I also think it speaks to the strength of the ways that the movement for black lives and you know, a bunch of different organizations um, and activists have been sort of foregrounding what's going on yeah. uh, in terms of racial discrimination. So I think people are hearing it more, but it's also
0: it speaks to the effectiveness uh, effectiveness of what people are doing. Yeah, too. It's, it's wild that it takes so long to sort of make that change. But change takes time. Right. And that's not yeah. just sort of. Um, in sort of mindset, but behavior change takes time. A lot of things sort of take time, and I and Nicole uh, Hannah Jones actually talks about that a little bit, right? Sort of, it, it's a little frustrating mm-hmm. uh, sometimes for folks how how slow we are to change. But um, yeah, it does happen, and and it does speak to sort of the power of this work. And you know, Nicole opens this reparations piece by talking about social unrest and activism and protesting and and why the Black Lives Matter movement exists and what it's working for and, and what it has accomplished. And you know, she talks about some of the tangible results of the Black Lives Matter movement and the power of sort of this unrelenting organizing in our country. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that it has helped to illuminate and, and force this country to talk about and address and reckon with racism and white supremacy and, and police violence against black people in this country Um, you know, and, and I think about sort of, again, connecting back to previous media we've had on the show, you know, last week we talked about the concept of whiteness and niceness and, and this came up in some of those articles too, like how in the past, you know, quote unquote, nice white folks could look the other way or, or say that that's those white people over there. Right. I think you, you, you brought that up, um, in our conversation last week, but, you know, Nicole reminds us that it is because of the Black Lives Matter movement, and unfortunately, because of the mounting accumulation of black and brown bodies, that, that white folks in this country as a whole are more open to having these conversations and and doing this work. And ultimately, I think, and, and hopefully moving us towards making reparations happen. Um, you know, and and all that to say going back to why I was a little heated when I when I first read this piece, you know, my initial reaction when reading this piece for the first time has stuck with me as I read it over and over a few more times. And 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 that is there's a compelling reason why reparations needs to happen. And and again, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I think, spells it all out here in this article. And I think I'm just angry and 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 flabbergasted, for lack of a better word, that that we can't even get Congress to pass HR 40 to simply study this issue in a meaningful way, right? Agreed. Yeah, it's insulting, I think, that yeah. the House can't even get it
1: out of committee, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think it would be one thing if they got it out of committee and it went to the floor and then it failed to vote on the floor. Like, right. that um, would create its own sort of rage-inducing incident. Yep, absolutely. Um, but um, to not even be able to get out of committee after, I don't know, it's in the article, like 30, 30 or 40 years yep. or something, yep. like, yep. being a bill. Um is 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 ridiculous to think about um but i you know i think a thorough study of this issue by congress would be helpful to get a process for reparations started um i think it would enter into the records some of the history that nicole hannah jones shares throughout this article and, and throughout some of the other um like work that she's done um you know i also think uh the study and reports uh, throughout our history have sometimes been ignored right so right it, it's not that's not all we would need um but it would be a good start i think um to at least start to uh, address that yeah um but yeah I, I think another piece that stuck out to me when we think about reparations um is when she writes about how um the perception of many people in government and many people sort of in power um has been that uh when we change laws and that, that marks the end of any kind of obligation. Right. So you you think about, um, we talked about this before in the sixteen nineteen episode when, uh, enslaved people were just turned away. Right. And told you're free to go. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, like free to go where, right. Like, right. Like, and do what, to do what, um, and so there was no means to create a life, uh, and, and sort of, Create a free life, right? Right. Um, they're just told they were free, um, and and please leave. Uh, so she writes about a few of Dr. King's speeches, sort of fast forwarding through history a little bit, um, or a lot. Uh, when he said that fighting desegregation was the easy part in the in the sort of Southern freedom movement, um, as it wouldn't really cost the country much, right? Like integrating lunch counters. Doesn't really cost a lot, yeah, um, of of real dollars, um, but economic equality would be costly, uh, and so some of the so-called allies that they had in the movement would be lost because of that. Um, so it's like the U.S. We can see the surface of a problem, but not the root cause. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like taking an aspirin for continued headaches, like chronic headaches, mm-hmm. without going to the doctor to figure out why you
0: keep having headaches. Right. Yep absolutely yeah I, I appreciate that connection and 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 also the connection to uh, king's work and king's words um mm. because it's so true um and and this takes work and effort effort um and we and our sort of elected leaders and uh in this country haven't really done that um which adds to sort of why this is all insulting but also i i appreciate what you said about the idea of entering this history um into the record. Right. I think that's meaningful and that's powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's why we need to be talking about and why HR 40 needs to, uh, get out of committee and go to the floor. Um, you know, as we've said, I think, and I think it should be, and probably is really clear, uh, that Nicole Hannah Jones is making the case for reparations in this piece. And I, and I think one of the strongest arguments she makes is about wealth. Um, she makes the strong argument, and I think this is obvious, that wealth is the means to security in America, right? And yeah. like to, to quote her, she says, wealth, not income, is the means to security in America. Wealth, assets and investments minus debt, is what enables you to buy homes in safer neighborhoods with better amenities and better funded schools. It is what enables you to send your children to college without saddling them with tens of thousands of dollars of debt and what provides you with money to put a down payment on a house. It is what prevents family emergencies or unexpected job losses from turning into catastrophes and leaving you homeless and destitute. It is what ensures what every parent wants—that your children will have fewer struggles than you did. Wealth is security and peace of mind, mm. right? Like powerful, and you know. And she goes on to sort of, I think, lay out and describe like this this idea of an economic head start that white folks have had in this country in every single facet of life uh, that she mentions is in that quote that I just read, right? Like this idea that black families earning 75K or more a year live in poor neighborhoods than white Americans earning less than 40K a year. That uh, racial income disparities today look no different than they did in the 1950s mm-hmm. uh, and as an example like poor white families that earn less than 27k a year hold nearly the same amount of wealth as black families that earn between 48k and 76k a year um the the fact that the federal government created redlining maps to push black people to certain neighborhoods and denoted those neighborhoods is uninsurable i mean we could we could certainly do a whole podcast episode about that um the that That black folks with a college education hold less wealth than white Americans who have not even completed high school, you know, and I'm just mentioning the highlights here, right? Like she goes in depth about each of these social and economic conditions and and really provides history and context and data to, to sort of show the depth of what this wealth gap has meant for for black folks in this country. Yeah, I think the there's a lot
1: in there about the wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another piece of this wealth gap is the um, or she covers uh, the ways in which white people have been the beneficiaries of some really astounding government programs that if we talked about them today, just based on our current discourse, they would be called entitlement programs. Right. Um, But specifically, she writes about the Homestead Act. Yeah. Um, So essentially, white people could apply to receive a plot of 160 acres. um, And that went to 1.5 million white families. Mm. Uh, And now 46 million white adults today descend from those recipients of the 160 acre tract. Um, Wow. And so. You know, Nicole Hannah Jones quotes another historian in the article here named Carrie Lee Merritt, who says that if that many white Americans can trace their legacy of wealth and property ownership to a single entitlement program, then the perpetuation of black poverty must also be linked to national policy. Yes. Right? Or the absence of a national policy that would provide uh, opportunities for wealth generation um, to uh, black families. Um and so I think that this um one, right, I want to recognize that this land was stolen yep. um from indigenous people and then just given away to white families. So that's yep. another layer here. It sure of, is um of the ways that uh you know the United States has perpetuated uh genocide um is removing people from lands and then giving it away to other other people. Um But, you know, connecting back to sort of the reparations conversation, this is a central thesis um, that so many of the ways that white families have built wealth over the years have been tied to government programs that have purposefully excluded black families. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we're living at a time when, um, you know, another statistic that that Nicole Hannah-Jones used, the average black household's wealth is 10 percent of
0: that of the average white household. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, I, there's so much sort of hypocrisy in this idea of, right, that we can trace this wealth, get wealth back to uh, sort of that program that you mentioned, the homestead, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, but that the reverse can't also be true. Like, why can't we sort of see that, you know, that this benefited white folks and has continued sort of over generations, yeah. you know, benefit white folks, but then the reverse has to be true, right? Mm-hmm. That if, if, this country didn't provide that for, for black folks and black families, then there's a deficit there. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we hide that history too, right? We don't, we don't talk about that. Um, we don't talk about like sort of where the land came from in the beginning, right. Or the fact that people could apply for it. Um, right. Like, um, you know, another piece that I, um, I don't have directly in front of me in my notes. Um, but, uh, she talks about, um, Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. um, uh, looking back on history sort of shortly after uh, reconstruction had uh, been ended by Andrew Johnson um, that the people who had been enslaved in other periods in history had received land or had received mm. some way to make a life, create a life um, from the people who had enslaved them. Right. And that mm. wasn't happening. Right. Right. And so he was calling on this history to, to say well we these things need to be repeated here in our context in the u.s um in order for um us to really move forward um and so yeah we don't we don't see that deficit at all we don't see um we we don't see the disconnect there no it's
0: hard yeah no so I, i appreciate you bringing that up um you know sort of maybe switching gears a bit, I, I definitely wanted to mention one of the other things that I really liked about this piece as I read it. And it's the fact that all of the images in this article are incredible. And I should yeah. say that this is for folks. If you check this article out, it's the sort of um, it's in sort of the, the New York times magazine sort of feature on, on the website. Um, you can sort of view these um, images that accompany the piece and, you know, they are certainly not lighthearted pictures by any means, but they tell such a rich and captivating story about our country and I think are a perfect way to visualize the significance behind it and context for the push for reparations. Um they are they're sort of scattered throughout the piece, but each image is actually sort of a transitional image where when you first see it, it's an image from the past. And then you scroll a little bit and it transitions or it morphs, uh, I should say, into a secondary image from more recent years. Yep. So for example, like the very first one we see is an image of a protest in Memphis from 1968. I, I believe it's from the Memphis sanitation strike of 1968. Um, but it's an image of black men in the street, all holding signs that say, I am a man. And then when you scroll, the image transitions into a Black Lives Matter protest in Harlem in 2020, where we see folks marching in the street. It seems to be sort of a, a mixed race crowd um, marching in the street and they're all holding Black Lives Matter signs and no justice, no peace signs. Um, and then later on in the piece, there's another set of images uh, where... It's one from Birmingham, Alabama and the riots there in 1963 that then transitioned to an image from Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 from protests there after Michael Brown. And so, and there are are a few more in there, but, you know, I was just really so moved by all of these images. Um, I think, you know, for one, stylistically, the way that they paired the images up and and the transition that happens is just really cool. Uh, But the the images and pairings themselves, and what they represent, are truly what's powerful and moving to me. The fact that we've that we're looking at images and, and pairings from 1963 and 2014, and from 1968 and 2020, and that even though each pair of images is is 50 years apart from one another, they are telling the same. I was going to curse there. They are telling the same story about this country. And, and it's history and present and what black people have been fighting for for years. Uh, and, I, and again, I think are just such a a, a great visual case for, for reparations. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the pictures are really impactful. And um,
1: they do the visual work that I think sh- she's doing throughout the, the article of connecting history to the present day yes. and making those links pretty clear. Um, and the, so the other piece that I was sort of speaking more on a meta analysis yeah. of the article, um, I was thinking about, uh, and just the astounding amount of links to oh, full yeah. stories of other parts of history, yeah. uh, in the article. Um, uh, she says in the article, there is much to know and yet we aggressively choose not to know it. Mm. um, and these links throughout the piece just reiterate that point to me um there's so much to know about all of these histories and we we just don't know it it's actively hidden from us which right. I sort of mentioned just a few minutes ago um but it's also astounding just how much history she's calling from uh in this article um yeah and Right. Like the depth that she's able to pull from in order to um, write something that is this powerful and enlightening uh, and meaningful. Um, and, you know, speaking of history that gets hidden. And honestly, the connection to the current day, there's a staggering t- statistic that she shares. Um, it's actually two st- statistics. Okay. Um, so she writes at least sixty five hundred black people were lynched from the end of the Civil War to 1950. Mm-hmm. And that's an average of nearly two people a week mm-hmm. for nine decades. Jeez. Right. And then shifting to the present day, nearly five black people on average have been killed each week by law enforcement since 2015. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, th- we think about how much violence there was uh, post-Civil War... Um, after Reconstruction was uh, effectively canceled right. by Andrew Johnson and um a bunch of other people um in the government um and you know the rise of of militant white groups like mm-hmm. the Klan and yep. and all those. Um, things and and the ways that violence was terror like reigns of terror were visited upon yes. black families yes. um who were trying to figure out how to make a life again with not much mm-hmm. uh, having not been provided anything after um emancipation um and so i feel like that's that's a history that we don't know we don't talk about a lot publicly but it's it feels like it's something that's there right yeah. like it, it um it feels like we we can scratch the surface like It is mentioned that lynchings happened in history books, right? Like, I I feel like I remember learning about that in history class in in K-12 school, right? Um, But then connecting that to the statistic that nearly five black people on average a, a a week has been killed by law enforcement since 2015. So just in the last, you know, this article is from last year, so five years is five people a week by law enforcement like in the sort of violent connection between that and vigilantes who were doing the same thing and those vigilantes were also connected to law enforcement in a lot of ways right yeah right and that's part of that's one of the links um, that she provides too but um yeah there's just like the depth
0: of history here i think is so um
1: i appreciate it so much
0: yeah i mean yeah, it's it's hard to sort of hear you, you say that, right? And mm-hmm. and to sort of recognize that, right? Like this idea of sort of black and brown folks losing their life to police violence is really, and I, and I know we've said this before in the show, but is modern day lynching, right? Like there is no doubt um, that you can't make that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, I think, I think we learned a little bit about this in school. I mean, I do remember textbooks in K through 12, probably more so, not probably, more so high school, right, of yeah. um, seeing images of, of you know, of lynchings lynchings in my history textbooks. And so we learned a little bit about that. But then there was never any sort of connection um, to what's happening today. And, and, and certainly, um, you know, when I was a high schooler, right, the, the world looks a little bit different now than it did when I was a high schooler but not by much, um, you know, and certainly so much right. has happened since, but, but again, not by much. And I think it, it is not difficult to make that connection. And especially now. And so I, I appreciate that Nicole brings that up in this piece and highlights it mm-hmm. um, for sure. I think one of the other things that I appreciated about this piece is how she ends it. And and again, I think what's so powerful about the article is that you know she spends so much of it building the case for reparations, right? Like yep. educating us with history and context, and and providing us with facts and figures about the state of being for Black folks in this country. And 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 I think you know, we've sort of talked a little bit about those things here today. Um, and then at the very end of it, she sort of says, "All right," and and with that, it's it's. It's time. It's time for reparations. Right. And I think she she sort of briefly and succinctly describes what they are, how they would be issued and, and, and how it's possible for us to make this happen. And, and so I actually want to read what she says at the end. She goes on to say reparations are not about punishing white Americans and white Americans are not the ones who would pay for them. It does not matter if your ancestors engaged in slavery or if you just immigrated here two weeks ago. Reparations are a societal obligation in our nation where our our constitution sanctioned slavery, Congress passed laws protecting it, and our federal government initiated, condoned, and practiced legal racial segregation and discrimination against black Americans until half a century ago. And so it is the federal government that pays. Reparations would go to any person who has documentation that he or she identified as a black person for at least 10 years before the beginning of any reparations process and can trace at least one ancestor back to American slavery. Reparations should include a commitment to vigorously enforcing existing civil rights prohibitions against housing, educational and employment discrimination, as well as targeted investments in government constructed segregated black communities and the segregated schools that serve a disproportionate number of black children but critically reparations must include individual cash payments to descendants of the enslaved in order to close the wealth gap. And so, you know, that was a lot for me to say there, Uh, but it really in the context of the article, right. And, and um, what she did there, I think it was such a um, succinct way, as I mentioned to, to sort of end it. Um, And, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, right. Like she ends it by reminding us, and we talked about this, that, you know, Congress still has refused for decades uh, to, to pass H.R. 40 uh, to simply study the issue. But um, I think the way she talks about all of that is a helpful primer for folks about reparations, which I think is helpful for folks' understanding of it, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, – yeah, I really appreciate that transition she has in the article yeah. where it's like here, here's the case and then it sort of closes with um, – you know comparatively speaking a relatively short section yes um, yes of you know this is why we need it um it's it's like letting the the history and the context sort of speak for itself and then and tell the story closing it closing it out um pretty succinctly in the way that you just you just shared um i think uh there's there's so much in this article um As I think we've said, uh, another piece of this that feels really relevant to me is when she's talking about the moment we find ourselves in, right, where we're seeing the pandemic expose cracks in the foundation of this country, which which might be a reason for why um, people seem to be um, more active in protests and movement um, over the last year. Yes. Um, But she also writes, if we are truly at the precipice of a transformative moment. The most tragic of outcomes would be that the demand be too timid and the resolution too small. Mm. If we are indeed serious about creating a more just society, we must go much further than that. We must get to the root of it. And I love that. I think yeah. um, we have to be radical. Um, you know, and I say that because Angela Davis reminds us that being radical simply means grasping at the root. Uh, we have to understand the context of where we are and what brought us here, and how we might be able to address that. Um, metaphoricals, bandages and aspirin, as I yeah. mentioned earlier, yeah. um, won't fix these glaring problems. Right? We have to. Right. We have, have to figure out what the condition is. Um, which we know what the condition is. We have to figure out how to how to actually uh, address the conditions.
0: Yeah, I sort of not forgot, but I didn't think about um, for for our conversation today the idea of the how she references the pandemic, right? And Mm -hmm. and you're right. I think it would be, and she's right. And others who have talked about this are right. Like it would be shameful for us as a nation to have gone through what we have gone through this past year and are still going through uh, with with COVID-19. And now that folks' eyes are open to that. And she talks about sort of, you know, she talks about, Nicole talks about white folks uh, sort of eyes opening to this in the context of the pandemic um, because it has affected them too. Yep. Uh, it would be it would be shameful for us to not do or make significant changes. Um, so, I, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah.
1: All right. So let's um, let's talk about how this applies to our lives. OK. Um, you know, and I think by now anyone listening knows uh, I love to quote people. Yeah, I just quoted Angela Davis. Um, I love it. So uh, bringing in James Baldwin here, he okay. said that people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. We're living in the consequences of the decisions people made before us. Right. Right. We have to reckon with those things in our present lives and take responsibility for what we can take responsibility for. This isn't about feeling guilt um, for it or anything like that. I think, you know, I think guilt is a natural reaction. Yeah, I'm not we're shaming humans. anybody who feels guilt. Right. Um, but I think it's, you know, what we do with the guilt and how we move that into sort of taking responsibility for for what it is that we can do. So that, that's my thought on application.
0: Uh, I appreciate that. Right. And right. Like we are humans. We have emotions and feelings yep, and yep. reactions to things. But I think we've, as a country, relied too much on that uh, or sort of that has been a barrier. Right. So mm-hmm. now what? Um, I, you know, I think an application of this is what Nicole talks about early on in the piece when she's describing the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's for folks to get involved and engaged in the movement. And I'd go one step further to say to stay involved and engaged, right? Yep. Like, you know, she references how the Black Lives Matter movement has become this multiracial and multigenerational mm-hmm. protest army. And I, and I love that. Uh, the idea that it's no longer just folks who look like me out there in the streets and in spaces like this um, or in, in whatever spaces, you know, they have influence of demanding uh, this country to do better by Black people. It's all kinds of folks doing it too, and so that's one application piece that I was reminded of in reading this article. I think and I hope we can sustain this effort and involvement. Since you know, as we talked about every week on our podcast, right, the work is not done. No, and the you know, that work
1: continues. Right? Yes, like it's 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 ongoing. Um, so, in thinking about homework, okay, moving from application, thinking about homework. Um, I think learning more about reparations is the maybe obvious homework here. Agreed, because um, yeah. I think that ob- I think that discussions around reparations um, can uh, provoke a lot of feelings mm-hmm. in people, uh, and so um, yeah, I, th- I think uh, learning more about what it actually means is important. I think I want to point back here to the Tanahasi Coates article the case for reparations that he wrote a few years ago that was in the Atlantic. Um, It's excellent. And it goes through different parts of this same history. So I feel like his piece and this piece um, are sort of metaphorical cousins. Yep. Um, Yeah. So I encourage people to go read that. Uh, I also encourage you to reach out to your Congress people uh, and tell them that you support HR 40 going to the floor. Um, You know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, uh, I have um, a lot of feelings around HR 40 and, and how effective it would be and, and whether it would yeah. go anywhere. But, um, you know, I feel like uh, it, it could be a futile exercise because the Republican senators would tune out most of any kind of report that HR 40 would generate yeah. anyway. Um, but at the same time, it feels important to me that a study and report be generated, yes. right? To enter it into the historical record of the the uh federal government so you know contact your congressperson and express your support uh for hr 40 uh we'll be putting links uh to how you can do that on our website uh in the podcast description we'll also share it out on our social media stuff but um yeah
0: that's absolutely. my homework absolutely well you know uh, folks we don't talk about our homework before we uh present it to you here but uh we were on the same page here um you know i think the homework i'm proposing is um to check out there was a book that nicole hannah jones references in this article about reparations and it's a uh, the book is by william darity jr and a kirsten mullen and it's called from here to equality reparations for black americans in the 21st century and apparently it provides history and a, and a roadmap and and answers to the questions about who should receive reparations and how reparations uh, reparations program would work um And and so, you know, I think the the concept of reparations is huge, uh, but I think it's important. And it sounds like this book is a a good and worthwhile resource to for all of us to sort of check out as we learn more about it um, and get more involved in it. Yeah, definitely. There's some really good uh,
1: pieces of information she pulls out from the book that is in the article, too. So, um, yeah, that looks like a great a great resource to check out. Um, all right. So moving into next week's
0: topic, Damien, you're up next week. Uh, what are you bringing to the table for our next episode? Yeah, I am up next week. And so we're going to be discussing an HBO documentary that came out last summer called Seeing America with Megan Rapino. And I actually think it's a little less of a documentary uh, and more so a conversation that... Megan has with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who we've talked about today and many times uh, on our podcast and Hassan Minhaj. And, and the conversation they have is all about the challenges we face, we face as a nation, which is obviously very timely and relevant. So um, I hope everyone has a chance to watch it with us and joins us next week.
1: Yeah. Looking forward to that. Uh, Definitely. So, yeah with that we want to thank you for joining us today and listening to interdependent study Uh, we really appreciate it Um, and you already know what I'm going to ask you to do here but in case you don't Recall. Uh, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review, share our podcast, and follow us on social media. Um, also, be sure to check out our website and social media to find our brand new merch store. Yes. Uh, and to send us a message. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and uh, feature your comment or question on a future episode. So you can do that. There's a link. Uh, you can leave us a nice little audio message that we will include uh, right here on a podcast in a future episode. Uh, if you don't want to do that, Uh, Also feel free to send us an email at hello at com, or, you know, just tweet at us, send us a message on Instagram, like, you know, however you want to reach us, uh, we'll, we'll figure out how to, uh, save that message
0: and get it onto the podcast. Absolutely. Please do. Uh, thank you folks for listening and remember it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week.